Well, good morning. Uh, if you haven't already, you can join me once again in the book of Ruth and open up to chapter 2. We, we ended last week right in the middle of, of a scene as we're on our journey through, through the book of Ruth. If you look around you, you may realize that there's a number of our body that are on journeys of their own this weekend. We have a lot of brothers and sisters to be praying for, for their safety and for their, for their rest. Um, we are going to be picking up right around verse 14 of chapter 2. We stopped at verse 13. What we saw last week is we watched Ruth wake up in the town of Bethlehem and step out in what, what we found to be a, a very impressive and exemplary act of faith. She went out of that town and she went out into the field uh, with the prayer on her lips that God might provide kindness to her through somebody. The hope was if she could find somebody who would give kindness to her on that day, that through their kindness she would be allowed to participate in the gleaning system of Israel. And uh, by means of that kindness she would be able to scrape out an existence. She would be able to avoid starving to death, she and Naomi with her. If you were with us last week, you remember how that went for her. She did find that person. She found Boaz. But in finding Boaz, she found much, much more love and protection than was offered to her in the law. We're going to continue moving through chapter 2 this morning. We'll, we'll, as I said, we'll be going back over a few of the verses that we looked at last week as well. And that's because instead of focusing on the person of Ruth in particular today, we're going to focus more carefully on Boaz and his place in this story. And we'll also need to take a look at Naomi as we reach verse 17. So what we'll do this morning is really to be broken up into three parts. The first thing we'll do is we'll finish the uh, Boaz and Ruth scene of verses 8 to 16, and again, focus in particular on Boaz. Then we'll shift to a focus on Naomi as we hear Ruth's conversation with her in verses 17 to 23. And then thirdly, we're going to return back to the person of Boaz uh, in order to better understand, in particular, what is said of him in verse 20. It's going to be just crucial for this book as Naomi describes him as one of their redeemers. That's a concept that we're going to be talking a lot about in the weeks to come, but we'll use our final uh, set of minutes this morning to start to introduce that idea. So with that framework in mind, I'd like us once again, as we did last week, to read the entire chapter aloud uh, so we can have the whole of it in our mind as we begin. Uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me at the reading of God's Word? Ruth chapter 2, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. 
And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And here is the new content that we will begin this week. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together one more time as we come into his word. Father, we thank you. We thank you every week that you see fit to continue to feed us from your word. We thank you for the family that we get to eat with together as we feast on your word. 
We thank you for the iron that we provide one another by your grace. Lord, we pray that you would sharpen us as we reflect together on the truths, the beauty, the picture that you show us of yourself and of your purposes in this passage. We thank you for it. Guard us as we walk our way through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin with verses 8 to 16 with finishing uh, Boaz's conversation with Ruth. We got as far as verse 13 last week, as I've mentioned. You remember the gratitude that we hear in Ruth's voice. We, we just imagined what this must have been for her to have someone speak to her like this after everything that she had gone through. And the person that's doing that, his name is Boaz. We have a lot we need to learn about Boaz as we start to see him in this, in this account. And we can begin with him uh, with a, a pretty practical matter. It was alluded to all the way back in verse 1. If you look back at verse 1 quickly, uh, we didn't talk about this then, uh, that Boaz is called there, quote, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. It's that word, uh, uh, excuse me, let me, <laughs> um, before that, uh, it says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. That's what I'm aiming at there. Not the word worthy, but the word relative. It calls, her, it calls him a relative of her husband's, a kinsman. It's important that you understand that that word does not simply refer to being physically related to Elimelech. That would be a little bit redundant, wouldn't it? As he goes on, the writer goes on to tell us that this is a man of the clan of Elimelech. Uh, this word conveys something a little bit more than just being related. It specifically conveys something of a closeness between two individuals, some sort of, a, of an active relationship that exists. There are people that I am related to that I have no active relationship with. There's no closeness with. That was not the case between Elimelech and Boaz. They had a closeness. And that means that this is a man, and we can tell from Naomi's reaction, this is a man that Naomi has known for a long time. She's known Boaz because when she married Elimelech, this man already had a close relationship with him. Now, that helps us a bit down in verse 8. Look down at verse 8. You see how Boaz refers to Ruth. He refers to her in the same way that Naomi did. He calls her, my daughter. And what that does for us, what all of this does, is it helps us to have the right image of who this man is. And specifically, I'm talking about the difference in age between Boaz and Ruth. This is not a man of the same generation as Ruth, which, again, helps us to really understand what's happening in, in the passage. And it might sort of burst the bubble of, of the romantics among us a little bit. And I'm sorry if that's... The case. It's not necessarily that there is um, no attraction here. There may well be a physical attraction, but that's certainly not what we're supposed to be being focused to here. All of the indications that the author is giving us should be making us think of Boaz as looking on Ruth with more of a fatherly tenderness than with something romantic. And that fatherly tenderness is, is expressed in a number of ways. We saw several of these last week. It's expressed in the way that he works to guard her safety. In verse 9, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? 
This fatherly tenderness is expressed in the kind words that we heard him give to her in verses 11 and 12. And what was most kind about those words that he spoke to her was that he acknowledged the legitimacy of Ruth's new relationship to Yahweh. He spoke in terms of of praying that God would repay her, would reward her for what she has done, both in her loyalty to Naomi and in her decision to, to align her loyalty, her submission to the God of Israel. And you can tell in the way he treats her and in the way he follows up those kind words that he is thinking of his gestures toward her as a part of that repayment. He prays for the Lord to repay her for what she has done, and then he begins to pour out these kind and even unnecessary blessings on her. And it's quite a picture that we get. You you see Boaz beginning to view himself as a means by which God is going to care for this poor but faithful widow in Israel. He's beginning to see himself as the means by which God is going to care for this as she has been called, this woman of the nations, this Gentile woman. So we see his tenderness toward her in the safety he provides, in the kind words that he is giving her. We also see his tenderness toward her in the honor that he gives to her. Look at, again at verse 14. There's just tremendous honor given to this, this poor gleaner who has come in asking for permission to scrape up the shavings from the dirt floor. Verse 14, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. Stop there for just a moment. This is an incredibly unusual honor for her to be given. He's sitting at his table with his entourage. He is the owner of the field. Uh, This is not a normal set of behaviors. He has his servants there. Uh, he, he has doubtless, what keeps, it keeps calling them his women there. This is the female group of his harvesting team who had their own responsibilities. They are all sitting at the table uh, eating together as a group that's going to work their way through the harvest. And for him to call her and to beckon her a seat at his table is a tremendous honor indeed. But the honor just continues to grow. He doesn't simply invite her to sit at the table. Continue reading in verse 14. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now it's important, again, that we have the right mental image in our heads about this. When it tells us in the ESV that he passed her uh, roasted grain, we're not to have the picture in our heads that he took the roasted grain and passed the plate around and it came to her or even that he passed her the plate of roasted grain and she took the big plate and just dumped it all on her own plate and passed it on and then ate until she had some left over. That's not what happened here at all when he passed her this grain. It's a difficult word. It's translated in a number of ways in our English translations because it's the only time in the Old Testament that this word shows up. So it's hard to know how to put that. But one of the related words, a noun form of that word, means something like tongs. And so the idea here, uh, it, it seems to be that he stood with the plate of grain and he, you could choose your verb, he shoveled grain 
onto her plate. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament at this point, translates it in this way. He heaped up for her roasted grain. This is what he did. Can you picture this? She's not the one choosing her portions. So notice then, not only does he invite her to sit at his table, but when it comes time to eat, he serves her her food. And he serves her so much food, and this is, this is a delicacy for her. This is prepared food, bread dipped in a wine sauce, roasted grain. And there's so much of it on her plate that when she cannot eat anymore, she still has some left over. You can tell by the fact that they include that detail that that's a big deal for someone in the position of being a gleaner. You're not just used to satisfying meals over and over again. This is very special. You can also tell that because what does she do with the leftovers? She takes them and puts them in her bag to bring home. This is no small blessing, this quantity that he is giving to her. After the meal is over, it's time to return to work. This is a midday meal, and so out Ruth goes again. And just remember from last week that she has been at this since early morning with hardly a break. This was what impressed the servant when Boaz asked the servant who she was. So she goes back out to glean. And again, Boaz's fatherly tenderness toward her follows her. It follows her uh, out into the field. Look at verses 15 to 17. We see him care for her in this way through the abundant gleaning that he provides for her. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her. And leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. We read last week what the law prescribes for field owners. What they had to do in order to set up this system to provide for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Do you remember those details that we were given? It extended past grain fields into vineyards and all of these things. Do you notice that none of what he directs his people to do in verses 15 to 17, or 15 and 16, none of that is in the law. None of that was required of Boaz to do. And apparently it had quite an effect on the amount that she was able to amass because when she's finished and she's beaten out what she has gleaned and all that's left is the grain, she has an ephah of barley. Now, there's a number of ways to think about this quantity. This is at least 30 pounds, something like 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Uh, I read a number of things describing, to put this in, in our context, one of them that I read was this. Uh, this meant that Ruth collected the equivalent of at least a half a month's wages in one day. Another man put it even more vividly. He said, uh, the bag, to put it more vividly in our culture, the bag she brought home was the size of a colossal bag of dog food. Now imagine what it would take for you to gather by hand the equivalent of that amount of food in one day's work. Certainly, she worked extremely hard that day. 
She slept good that night, I would imagine. But her hard work does not explain this 30 to 50 pound bag. I don't think in terms of dog food because I don't have a dog at home. I think, so this made me think of uh, the, we have a 50-pound bag of rice in our utility room, which is all my fault. This is from the early COVID days when I wasn't just totally sure that we'd be able to feed our family in a month or two. And so as I'm looking for things that will last, I'm seeing just the empty rows of rice. Nothing's there but the 50-pound bag. So I grab the 50-pound bag. I'm a good husband and father. And we've had that thing open. It doesn't look like we've hardly put a dent into it. It's going to be there for a long time. This, this will provide for Ruth and Naomi abundantly. So what we're seeing is an incredible extent of Boaz's care and provision for Ruth. We're seeing Boaz serve here as the means of mediating God's blessings to her and to Naomi. It's the very thing that Boaz prayed for God to give her, and he is seeing himself as at least part of the means that that will come to her. We'll raise this again here later on when we come to the concept of a redeemer, of a kinsman redeemer, and the sense of responsibility that is there. But as we come into verse 18, what we begin to see next, this is a, this is a large shift going from 17 to 18. What we're going to start to see now is the effect of these blessings from God through Boaz, the effect of that on Naomi. What might God be doing in Naomi through these blessings that he is giving through Boaz to Ruth. It's very important for us to remember. We've been thinking about Ruth for quite some time here now, and rightly so, because a big part of the story of the book of Ruth is God's work in and through Ruth and all the pictures that we see there. But listen, just as big a point is there for us in the display that we have of God's grace on Naomi, the effect of his grace on Naomi. And as we come into verse 18, what we start to see is a picture of the change that God is giving to her by these surprising demonstrations of his grace. Naomi is in for a big surprise when Ruth gets home. You remember what we've been seeing of her. You remember what we've learned about her, for lack of a better word, her mental state at this point, her expectations about her life. She already told us what she's expecting for the rest of her days in chapter 1, verse 13. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And you remember her reasoning there was she was trying to convince the, the, the two women that she loved to go away from her. Because why would you want to stay with me? I care about you. I don't want you anywhere near me. All that's left for me is misery and death because God has made me his enemy. The shorthand to describe what she has done is to say that she has believed a lie about God. That's what she's done. It's something that we're all familiar with in this room. It's the same lie that we've all believed to varying degrees at various points in our lives. We've all experienced the struggle uh, and even felt in us the effect that it has. There's one man who wrote something very helpful about this. Ian Duguid has written quite a bit about Ruth. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. 
Uh, and when he, when he was writing about Naomi and this, uh, this state that she is in, he said something very helpful. Listen to what he said. When we stop believing in God's goodness and give ourselves over to doubt and worry, we easily sink into a despairing inactivity. This can lead to a downward spiral in which our inactivity makes our situation worse and deepens our despair, which in turn makes us feel less inclined than ever to step out into what we believe to be a hostile world. Now listen to what he says next. The key to breaking that cycle is grasping hold of God's covenant commitment to do us good. I'll read that last sentence again. The key to breaking that cycle is grasping hold of God's covenant commitment to do us good. Surely this is the sort of thing that is commanded of us in places like Psalm 103. The first two verses of that psalm, one of my favorite psalms in all of the book of Psalms. Uh, first two verses, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Which is then followed by a list of the ways that God has been good to us in the past. And provides something of the basis on which we can always hope and pray for his goodness in the future. And even ex expect his goodness, so long as we have a biblical concept of what goodness looks like. Ruth walks in the door at the end of the day, and if Naomi has been waiting to hear what new manner of hardship Yahweh has given to them now, well, here's what she finds instead. Verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And stop there. What does Naomi find when Ruth gets home that night? Well, she finds three things. Let's skip over the gleaning for just a moment. Let's start with the second thing. Let's start with the, with the doggy bag. One thing she finds is she finds this unexpected and unnecessary kindness from Ruth in the form of a doggy bag of leftovers. This is a, this is a very impressive meal that she had left over from lunch. She could have eaten it on the way home after the second half of the day of working out in the field or to sustain her energy as she carried the 50-pound bag of dog food all the way home. She could have eaten it. She carried it and kept it specifically so that when she got home, she might take this surprise out. You know what that sort of feeling is when it's not even something um, extremely substantial, but it's such a thoughtful thing that it blesses you in a way that's completely different from, the, from other things. Now, this meets her needs as well because she's hungry, but there's something special about this gesture. Ruth is bringing to Naomi to save this for her. The second thing that Naomi finds is she finds the realization 
of the bountiful blessing that God has given in the gleaning. In verse 18, she sees what Ruth gleaned. And in verse 19, her immediate reaction is, Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now that's interesting. Notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, Blessed be you, daughter-in-law, for your incredible gleaning skills. Was this really your first day? How did you know how to do this so effectively? That's not at all where her mind goes. And it's because the quantity is so large that she knows that's not what really happened here. Her gleaning skills and even her work ethic cannot explain this massive bag of barley that she is bringing home. If your child goes out into the front sidewalk to set up a lemonade stand for an hour, 50 cents a cup, they've made everything, and they come back with $500, you don't have to think your way to what happened there. You don't have to try to investigate. You know immediately what happened. Someone was very kind to you. That's what happened. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she sees this specific kindness from Ruth, this thoughtful thing that even reinforces Ruth's love and commitment to her. She sees this uh, bountiful gleaning that is explained by even now someone outside of the two of them showing her favor. She also sees from verse 20 this sudden realization of potential future blessing. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now compare the two exclamations that she gives here, the one in verse 19 and the one in verse 20. Look at them both. So verse 19, Blessed be the man who took notice of you, and then Ruth tells her, oh, his name is Boaz. And then there is this immediate exclamation of wonder and praise. And it's not about the food this time. It's about the providence that Ruth has uh, experienced in coming into this direct contact with this man. May he be blessed by the Lord that he is Boaz. May Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She prays for Boaz to be blessed, but then she praises God for his kindness which has not forsaken the living or the dead. And this is huge. If you've been following through this study, if you've been, been reading over Ruth and you remember Naomi's history up to this point, this is absolutely huge. Could it be, could it be that God has some kindness in store for Naomi's family line? And listen, not just any kindness. Naomi is praising Yahweh, she says, uh, whose hesed has not forsaken them. We've seen that word before. She's praising Yahweh for a covenant faithfulness and commitment that he seems perhaps maybe to be displaying to her family. I mean, you can see things starting to click into place for Naomi because she's being faced with some evidence that her bitterness worldview cannot account for 
any longer. Could it be that she was wrong to see God as the destroyer of her family? Could it be that instead of the destroyer of her family, that maybe the God of Israel will prove to be the hope of her family? Her family has no hope at this point. There is no hope unless God sends a redeemer to rescue her family. Is this a God who might provide a redeemer that will rescue her family from destruction? And you can tell that that's what she's thinking about because it's the next thing that she says. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. See, we have to think about the options that Ruth has had up to this point. She is now a, uh, not only a foreigner who is not yet uh, fully assimilated into Israel's life. Uh, she's not connected by any marriage at this point. Uh, she's young. She's widowed. She's unmarried. She is, she is uh, very realistically free, if she were to choose, to be remarried to some prospect out there. And if she were to do that, well, she would be cared for by that new husband, wouldn't she? What would happen to Naomi? Ruth would leave her house and belong to the house of another. Any child that would be born would be born to that family. And that would be the end of that. Naomi is well beyond childbearing age. So that would be the end of that. That's one option that Ruth has. And it almost seems like perhaps Naomi not only knows that, but she's expecting that to be what will happen. Ruth has a second option, too. Ruth's second option would be to be involved with the term that Naomi uses here in verse 20, to be involved with what's called a kinsman redeemer. That option would involve Ruth specifically marrying a qualifying near relative of her first husband because she's childless. She's not produced a male heir. Uh, and so this, uh, this is possible. And if she were to choose that option, her marriage would then provide children that would be legally recognized as belonging to her first husband, belonging to Malon. And Naomi's family line would continue. She's got two options. Boaz is going to praise her in the next chapter for not going after option number one. And we'll talk about that then. The point here is, Naomi suddenly sees something as soon as the name Boaz came out of her mouth. Naomi saw possibilities that her worldview had completely excluded up to that point. Naomi sees that God might just be putting pieces into place so that in spite of all she thinks she's seen, in spite of all that she has come to expect, he might be guiding her with hesed love and faithfulness on her and on her family. Maybe he's not out to get her. Maybe he's still willing to smile upon her in spite of her history of sin and rebellion. And notice that all of uh, what it required for her bitterness worldview to be shaken at its core was one day of the experience of Ruth being blessed in this land. Ruth went out, if you think about it, she went out empty 
and came back full. The exact opposite of how Naomi described her own situation. I, have come, I left here full and I have come away. God has brought me back empty. Well, in one day, Ruth upends this thinking. And you can hear the hope in Naomi's voice. Perhaps she has been too quick with her bitterness. Before we move on to verse 21, let me ask the question for each of us in here. Are there any ways that this picture can help and protect you in your thinking today? Are we a people, I'm talking now to believers, to God's children who have been uh, sanctified by the blood of Christ, who's, who have been led into, uh, given a new heart, opened our eyes to see the truths of what God is doing? Are we a people who believe that God is only doing good for us when all is well? How do you define the idea of being blessed by God? And I, I do worry that there's one way that this story might even confuse in some ways. Are we to take from Naomi's barley? I mean, she literally has this huge physical bag of provision that satisfies her immediate physical needs. Are we to take from that bag of barley that God fulfills his people by blessing them with temporal blessings in this life? Is that the picture that we take from this? It's not, and I hope it's not the picture that you're taking. I, I do want you to turn with me for just a moment into the New Testament. There's a place that very, very powerfully conveys how we should um, where we should put the barley bag in the picture of God's blessing of the faithful. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to actually skip past the more well-known parts at the beginning and come to verse 32. I'd like to read verses 32 to 40. Draw your attention to a few things, and then we'll come back into Ruth chapter 2. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32. This is a summary picture. You can tell by how he'll begin. He's just basically summing up the picture of faithfulness in the Old Testament. What did it look like? How does God's blessings show through uh, what happens to the faithfulness of his people? Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, by the way, can you tell, he's just giving a smattering example list there. He's talking about the faithful in the Old Testament. Verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. I wish the next verse started there, because here is the shift. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed. <coughs> they were killed. With the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world 
of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Here's the summary of the Old Testament witness. What do we see from the faithful in the Old Testament? Well, we, there's quite a bit of temporal victory in verses 33 and 34. There's temporal blessing received. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. That's temporal blessing in this life. And then there's also the exact opposite of that. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. You have a litany here of miserable situations. Everything from being sawn in two to being let to live so that you might live out the rest of your life wandering about in deserts and dens and caves. But notice verse 39. And that all is the all of what we read. Whether we're talking about conquering kingdoms or, and receiving promises, things like that, or being stoned to death or sawn in two, he says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What does that mean? It means that the blessings that defined them, these people of whom the world was not worthy, the blessing that defined them was the blessing that was to come through union with Christ. And that's why he finishes here and goes right in in the next chapter to the command for us. Therefore, let us run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is what we are called to. This is what sums up the fidelity of God's people throughout time. And it's put on display whether they are given great temporal blessings in this life, which some of them were, or whether they were not. What defined them as God's people was that they all lived their lives looking to a blessing that was to come, seeking a better land, seeking a better life. They were looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can come back to Ruth chapter 2. I take that entire rabbit trail into Hebrews to make a single point, and that is that Ruth's grain blessing here is typological. This is a, and typology and symbolism are not the same thing. We'll talk about typology in some of the weeks to come because it's very important in Ruth. But this, this blessing of grain is a symbol of God's choice to bless her at this point in the land by providing in this way. Maybe you have not been given a season in life right now that is pictured by a 30-pound bag of food showing up. Maybe you feel more like the picture of being sawn in two or wandering in deserts. But the answer in Hebrews 11 is the same either way. All of God's goodness and his blessings belong to his people, and he mediates all of them through his Redeemer that he has given to us. So fix your eyes upon Jesus and run with endurance the race that is set before you. This is where our thinking leads us as we think about these sorts of things. 
Verses 21 to 23 fill in for us and for Naomi, who didn't know this yet either, the news that Boaz has arranged for her to be provided for throughout both of the upcoming harvest seasons. In verse 23, three months pass. That's how much time goes on here by the end of the barley and wheat harvest. She goes out every day for three months and is provided for by Boaz. And the author tells us that all of that time that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. Now, why does he include that? It's an interesting closing detail in chapter 2. Well, it tells us a few things about Ruth. Ruth, is she has proven her intentions. She swore to Naomi that she would be with her and would not leave her. She's proving that, isn't she? It was interesting to read that typically in the heat of the, I mean the, the uh, heat metaphorically of the harvesting season, when things got extremely busy, the agricultural team of women who worked with a particular landowner would live together during that time for the sake of efficiency. They could bed down, get up in the morning and get to work. It was typical for them to live together during some of those seasons. And Ruth, she's still a gleaner. She's not one of the reapers, but she has been welcomed into the entourage, it would seem, by eating with them. It may well have been that she had the opportunity to stay there uh, in order to get more food. She doesn't do that. She lives with her mother-in-law all this time. The other thing that this shows us, though, is it, it serves the purpose of letting the clock tick by for three months for us to recognize that three months later, she still is living with her mother-in-law. Nothing has happened in, in the progression of this building um, uh, question mark that is Boaz. Nothing has happened. What's going to happen? Is anything going to happen? This is one of the effects that that has for us. And notice as well that when chapter 2 ends, the harvest season is over. What does that do to Ruth's access to Boaz? The question marks are growing larger here. What's going to happen? This writer is a very good writer. If you wrote the books that I read to our boys at night, they'd be mad because anytime I read a book that where chapters end on cliffhangers, they are not happy about it. They want to know. He's, he's good at this. We're definitely going to keep going into chapter 3. Now, we're going to stop here in the text, and with the time that we have left, which is not long, we, we are going to go back to verse 20 and think for just a moment about this idea of a redeemer. There's a lot to be said about the redeemer and so I thought it wise for us to begin to go into that uh, this week. The word here that she speaks when she says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is, it's, the word is goel. This is, a, this is a legal term that she uses. It's in the realm of family law in the land of Israel. And what that word entails is a set of familial duties, responsibilities that near male relatives had amid their own family, amid their clan. Those responsibilities are laid out in Leviticus chapter 25. Let me just go over a few of those for you. What Leviticus 25 tells us specifically about the Goel is that they were to do these things. They were to buy back property if they could that a near relative had had to sell because of a financial emergency. So if I fall into a terrible financial emergency, and I can only get out of it by selling my own family's land. Now, that's a huge threat to the family. 
my near male relative, if he was able, had the responsibility to come and spend his own money to buy the land back and give it back to me. And he redeemed the land. He served as a kinsman redeemer if he did that. Another thing they were supposed to do was to literally buy back their relative. In those days, you could get into such financial trouble that you had to sell yourself into slavery in order to continue on. And if that happened, your near male relatives of a certain distance were supposed to come seek you out and purchase your freedom for you. Already, can you hear some of the, the categories that God is giving us in his law to prepare us to hear of what his son is going to do for us. That Jesus is called our redeemer throughout the New Testament. And what we can forget is God has been spending hundreds of years setting up the categories for us so we have some place to hang the hat when, we, when we're trying to know what God is doing for us in his son. He's the one who gave these laws. In fact, even before this, he has been speaking of himself as a redeemer. In the Old Testament, God is the redeemer even before there is something of a human redeemer in the kinsman redeemer. It's, it's an image of the, the sorts of protection that God gives within his covenant, which is why this is a family issue. Families are covenantal units as well. There were other duties as well. One of the coolest ones is if one of your relatives is murdered, you are charged by the law to go hunt down his killer and execute him. Now that's interesting. That's a kinsman redeemer job as well. And there are a few others. But on the main, the point of a kinsman redeemer is twofold. Preserving the family line and preserving the family inheritance. Of course, the greatest threat to the family line is if women are left childless and no heir is produced. That's a tremendous threat to the family line. That's the threat that Naomi is living under right now as she's back in the land. Now, that threat is not addressed in Leviticus 25 when it talks about kinsman redeemer. It's interesting. That threat is addressed in Deuteronomy 25 when it talks about what is called leveret marriage. Now, that word is spelled L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. It's confusing. It makes us think that that's talking about the Levites or something like that. It's got nothing to do with the Levites. There's a word, levir, which means your husband's brother. And that's where this term comes from. Listen to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, there's Naomi, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. There's that word, husband's brother. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. It was a big deal to them that family names not be blotted out. You can see at the end of the book of Judges when the name of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is in danger of being blotted out. And the whole nation that had been just not getting along at all, they come together immediately to try to come up with a plan to not let the name be blotted out of Israel. God has set up provisions in his law for this. Again, we'll look at a lot of this next week, but we need to notice one thing in particular at this point. Who did that leveret marriage law speak to? It's a law concerning the brother of the first husband. 
Boaz is not Elimelech's brother. He's a near relative. And this is why you can tell that the Leverett marriage things were seen as sort of a subsection of the kinsman redeemer protocol. It was the same desired effect. And so if there wasn't one there, it, you could tell that they expected that responsibility to then go out into near male relatives. But Boaz is not the one under the constraint of the law to do this thing. It's not a law that speaks directly to Boaz. And in fact, as we'll see, there are other living male relatives that have more of, an, of a law obligation than Boaz does, at least one. And what that means for us is when Naomi speaks and hopes for a redemption to occur for her family through Boaz, if that redemption is going to come from him, it is not going to depend on the law. It's going to depend on whether Boaz is willing to give grace to Naomi. Even if the obligation comes to him, he has the ability in the law to pass it by to someone else. It says a lot about Boaz and the significance of his decisions moving forward. I'll close with just a single observation. I think it's good for us to leave thinking about this, um, having this on our minds as we go. Boaz is on the incredibly short list in the Old Testament of the people, the places, the situations that most clearly present to us the mystery of Christ. The places in which the shadow, Colossians 2 talks about shadow and substance, and there were a number of things in the Old Testament that were shadows, that when Christ came, the substance of those shadows came. It's like if you're looking around a corner and you see someone's shadow there, you know there's a person coming close on the heels of that shadow, right? Who is it? Uh, Peter Pan, right? You can't separate the two. If there's a shadow, something is coming close behind. There are shadows in the Old Testament of the coming of Christ. And Boaz is on the extreme short list of the places where that shadow is most clearly seen. And that's for a number of reasons that we've already seen. Tribe of Judah, town of Bethlehem, line of David, kindness shown to the foreigner. But it's due in largest part because of this matter of redemption. As important as the role of kinsman redeemer is in the law, did you know in, in all of the Old Testament, Boaz is the only human kinsman redeemer that's featured? It's the only human example of it in the Old Testament that's given to us. And chapter 2 ends here with the most intense question pressing upon us. And here's the question. Will grace come to Naomi through Boaz even though the law does not require him to do so? Will Boaz's goodness to Naomi extend even beyond the requirements of the law? It's not hard for us to see some of the breadcrumbs that God is leaving for us to understand later in the fullness of time when the shadow has passed away. The law is good, but it is not able to provide what we desperately need. So what then can God do? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Romans 3.21 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. 
being witnessed to by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Father, we are grateful for the ways that you so faithfully lead and teach us. And I pray that we would all go from this place with a renewed sense of how hopeless our, uh, our situations would be apart from your free, sovereign grace that you have poured out through your Son. I pray for us, Father. We live in a time that it's so easy to live lives of great ingratitude. Far be it from us, regardless of the circumstances that you choose to lead us through, far be it from us to ever be seen as ungrateful. And I pray, Lord, that we would focus on the tremendous gifts that you have given us through your Son, by your mercy, so that we might sing your praises all the day long. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction. Coming from the end of Hebrews, since we went there this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. This is beautiful. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.